Now let's make the transition into today's message. Uh, it has been my habit uh, since I became a pastor some years ago to bring a message on Christian giving and financial stewardship in the fall of each year, and that is exactly what I will do uh, today. This message will also uh, bring to a close of what has been a nine-month study of the uh, precious little book of Philippians. Uh, this book ends with the Apostle Paul thanking the Philippians uh, for their financial support of his ministry. Now, as you see in your sermon notes, uh, before we look at the Philippian verses, I want us to touch on two other passages on Christian uh, giving. And let me also say that uh, I pray uh, that we will uh, see a tremendous spirit of generosity expressed uh, through our church family. Uh, uh, this church family has always amazed me uh, at your willingness uh, to give, uh, your generosity. And we do have two significant challenges for us as we uh, close out this new year. Uh, right now, we are running behind uh, the general budget. Now, we're still in the black because we carried some money over from last year's budget and because we're trying to be careful about uh, spending. Uh, but right now, we're running about $38,000 uh, below meeting this year's budget. So I trust as we close this year out, we'll just see a great outpouring of generosity. And I'd love to see us, of course, uh, meet the general budget. And then, of course, there'll be the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, uh, which this church has always had a remarkable uh, testimony in relationship to in terms of the level of your giving. And I trust it'll be the same uh, this year. So please uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to the uh, first passage, which you see there is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, where we find instructions on giving uh, to those living in abundance. Instructions on giving to those living in abundance. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now notice this passage begins by saying, instruct those who are, what's it say? Rich in this present world. Now keep in mind that the standard of living most of us enjoy in America uh, is very significant in comparison to the rest of the world in which we live. And of course, most definitely, uh, we would be rich in the eyes of uh, Timothy's congregation to whom this uh, admonition was initially directed. Uh, when the Apostle Paul refers to the rich in verse 17, he's not just talking about those with the most expensive houses or properties or the largest bank accounts. To be rich is simply to have more than the essentials 
of food, clothing, and shelter. In today's terminology, it means to have discretionary dollars. It means to have, once your bills are paid, that you have some money left over that you decide how you're going to spend it, how you're going to use it. And for most of the members of our church, we would fall into that category. Now, before we look at the four instructions that you see there in your notes on Christian giving uh, that are in verses 18 and 19, look again at the warning that he begins with in verse 17. He says, we are not to be conceited. We're not to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies all things to enjoy. First, we are not to let riches, Paul says, make us conceited. And second, we are not to fix our hope on riches. We are not to look for security in money, in material things. Now, let me share several verses which are not in your notes, but that reinforce this warning. Now, first, the issue of becoming conceited over what you possess and the foolishness of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Listen. What are you puffed up about? What do you have that God has not given you? And if all you have is from God, why act as though you are great and as though you have accomplished something on your own? How about Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 12 through 18? And let me read it from the paraphrase, the message. It says, make sure that when you eat and are satisfied, build pleasant houses and settle in, and watch your standard of living go up, make sure you don't get so full of yourself and your things that you forget God. If you start thinking to yourselves, I did all this, and all by myself, I'm rich, it's all mine. Well, think again. Remember that God, your God, gave you the strength to produce all the wealth. So we're not to be conceited, but we're to maintain what? A humble position before God, realizing our total dependence upon Him, and there's nothing that we possess right now that we have not received from the hand of God. Now, how about the issue of fixing your hope on riches, looking for security in riches, the mistake of confusing uh, money in the bank uh, with security in life? Again, several more verses. Proverbs 11, verse 28. Trust in your money, and down you go. Trust in God, and flourish like a tree. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the wink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies off into the wild blue yonder. Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Those who love money, those who love money will never have enough. And how absurd to think that wealth brings happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what is the advantage of wealth? Except perhaps to watch it run through your fingers. Bottom line, believing you can have enough money to gain security living in a fallen world is an illusion. Yes, money is an important commodity, but not, it's not all-powerful. It is not all-powerful. 
I mean, just a few examples. Money can buy you a comfortable bed, but not a good night's sleep. Money can buy you a lovely house, but not a loving home. Money can buy you medicine, but it can't buy you health. Money can buy you pleasure, but not peace. It can buy you luxuries, but not happiness. It can buy you a crucifix, but not a savior. The point is, you can waste your life chasing after the illusion of gaining financial security, or you can risk your life for the cause of Christ and make your money count for something. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, to use your money to secure treasure in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now, this takes us right to the four commands in 1 Timothy 6. So, follow along in your notes, and you can fill in the appropriate blanks there. And the first command, the first instruction is to invest. In other words, he says, if you have discretionary money after all your other needs are met, and as you consider how you're going to utilize that money, he says, make sure that your top priority is to invest your resources to impact the world for Christ and to receive eternal rewards. Look at verse 18 again. Instruct them to do good. The words do good are the translation of the Greek word agathgerio. It means to do what is qualitatively good, to do what is best in other words. In other words, to try to exceed in this area to do something uh, for someone else's advantage. In other words, when the many appeals come to you for financial support, and they do come to you from every angle, he says, be careful to use your resources, those discretionary funds, primarily for the advantage of Christ, because there is no greater good than that. There is no greater way that you can use your money than to advance the gospel, to advance His kingdom, that men and women, boys and girls, might be reached with the gospel of Christ to know salvation. You know, Luke chapter 19, this is not in your notes again, but Luke chapter 19, verse 15 reads, After he was crowned king, he returned and called his servants to whom he had given the money, and he wanted to find out what their profits were. Now, this verse is taken out of the, one of the, the many, many parables that Jesus gave on financial stewardship. Matter of fact, you might find it amazing that of all the parables Jesus shared in his ministry that are recorded in the Scripture, one-third deal with financial stewardship. Matter of fact, you may be shocked to know if you take all of Jesus' teachings, one-sixth of his teaching dealt with financial stewardship, how we utilize our money, making the advance of God's kingdom our priority. And all I want you to see, the reason I read that verse is that one day we will give an account to Jesus on how we used our resources to profit His kingdom and work. This is why Verse 19 of 1 Timothy 16 says, storing up for themselves. In other words, as you do invest, he says, you're storing up for yourselves the treasure 
of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Storing up literally means amassing a treasure. The word foundation refers to a fund. Now, isn't that exciting? In other words, Paul is saying by investing earthly treasure, by taking those discretionary funds that you have, investing them in the cause of Christ, you actually lay up for yourself heavenly treasure. You amass a treasure in heaven that you will enjoy throughout all eternity. Look at the second instruction. Look at the second instruction. Also become known more for what you give than what you possess. He says become known more for what you give than what you possess. That second phrase in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6, it says instruct them to be rich in good works. The word rich is pluteo in the Greek, and that word literally means abundantly furnished. To abundantly furnish. We are to abundantly furnish the house of God and the lives of others, the work of Christ, the advance of His kingdom. So much so that we become known more for what we give than what we possess. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying in this message, you cannot enjoy a beautiful home. I'm not saying you cannot enjoy nice things. We read in verse 17 that God, what? Richly supplies us all things for what purpose? He says, to enjoy it. So yes, you can enjoy a lovely home. Yes, you can enjoy nice things. That's all okay. But what I am saying without hesitation, without without apology, is that it is wrong when we become so busy seeking a nicer home or more luxuries that we neglect the support of God's house. We neglect the support of God's work and to advance His kingdom. It is wrong when we buy the best for ourselves and then just give God the leftovers. It is wrong when our giving is low because our debts are high. And our debts are high because our wealth is being used for things that really don't mean anything in light of eternity. You know, God gives a very powerful warning along these lines in Haggai uh, chapter 1, verse 9. This is what he said uh, to the people back in that day who had neglected uh, God's house, who had neglected the upkeep of the temple. He says, you hope. For so much, but you get so little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. It doesn't last at all. Why? Because my temple lies in ruins and you don't care. Your only concern is your own fine homes. Again, Hear me now. The problem was not that they had nice homes. They had those nice homes because God had provided them the resources. And he did want them to enjoy all of that. The problem was, again, in the pursuit to increase their standard of living, they had neglected supporting God's house. They had stopped giving. They had stopped tithing. As it says in Malachi, 
Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? And God's response, in tithes and offerings. You know, we talk a lot in uh, Baptist circles about uh, tithing. And my purpose of the message today is not to give a sermon on uh, tithing. uh, But we talk about the importance of giving uh, 10%. I've never taught that as a legalistic obligation. I think we're to give out of delight, not out of duty. And 100% of what we have is God's, and we should follow His leadership and His prompting. But I think tithing is a wonderful practice. I think it's a wonderful place to begin. I mean, the, the reason for tithing, the reason for giving, uh, the reason for all offerings is fundamentally to what first express your gratitude uh, to God for salvation and for His blessings on your life, and not only to demonstrate gratitude, but to demonstrate that God is the priority of your life. Therefore, you're going to give to Him first. You're going to take those discretionary funds and make sure that the priority is demonstrating first your love for God. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight. And it's also a demonstration of trust, that I'm doing this because I trust you. I'm I'm not looking to finances for my security. I'm looking to you for my security. So I know I can't outgive you. So I'm going to give knowing that as I do, you'll be faithful to me. You know, uh, I've, I've shared this before. There was a fascinating study that done uh, not all that long ago. And it, it, was, it found out that in the United States of America, I'm talking about in our evangelical churches, that the average church member only gives 2.1% of their income. And it was determined by the numbers in our evangelical churches, we're talking about membership, that if every member would simply give 10% of their, again, discretionary funds, that we would have $139 billion more a year to invest in the cause of Christ in the advance of the gospel of Jesus. So... When you look often at Christian ministries or churches or whatever that struggle, the reason we struggle is because we hold on and we don't give as God intended us to give. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight. Look at the third instruction. We're to give sacrificially. We're to give sacrificially, not merely out of surplus funds. That third phrase in verse 18, instruct them to be generous. Instruct them to be generous. Generous, that word in the Greek literally means to be liberal or bountiful. The King James reads, ready to distribute. Instead of stockpiling your wealth, in other words, God is saying, you're to be a distribution center for God. Now, again, there's a balance in all this. The Bible talks much, teaches much about the principle of saving. So we're not trying to say it's wrong uh, to save, but again, not to the point where you neglect the priority of investing in God's work, seeing that God wants to use you as a distribution center to minister to the needs of others, to advance His kingdom, to support the household of God. I love what King David said. This is the spirit that we should all have in this matter. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. I'm not going to give an offering that costs me nothing. And see, what should, what should prompt that kind of attitude? 
Because Jesus sacrificed everything for us. He who was rich became poor. That through what? His poverty, we might be made rich. So as we look at the mercy, as we look at the grace of God, as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, that is what should motivate us to step out of our comfort zone, to step out in faith and to give, not merely out of our surplus, but to give sacrificially. Uh, Look at the fourth instruction, the fourth instruction. Become personally involved in the work of Christ. And this is a very important truth here. Become personally involved in the work of Christ. That last phrase in verse 18 reads, instruct them to be ready to share. The phrase ready to share derives from the common New Testament word for fellowship, koinonia. That's the word right there. In other words, when you give to the cause of Christ, when you, when you give to the church, it's not to be done in a cold, detached manner. God desires you to become personally involved with the gift. He doesn't want you to be a spectator in his life and in his work. He wants you to be a participant. He wants you to be active in the church. God wants more than anything else, you. He's not after your money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need any of our money. What he wants is our hearts, but he knows the way we utilize our resources is a reflection of what truly is important to us, that we utilize those discretionary funds on that which we value most, that it is a spiritual barometer, our giving is a spiritual barometer to our hearts. So, for those living in abundance, for those living in abundance, You are to invest your resources to impact the world for Christ and receive eternal rewards. Become become known more for what you give than what you possess. Give sacrificially, not merely out of surplus funds. And become personally involved in the work of Christ. Now look at the second passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And let's read that together. And this is a very uh, important passage to read, even in light of our... A study of the book of Philippians. This is a testimony of giving that comes out of the churches in Macedonia. And one of those churches was the church at Philippi. Uh, these were churches that were under persecution. These were churches that were literally struggling with destitution, with poverty, just making ends meet because of the hostility that they were facing in their culture. Now, you would think that they would have an excuse on this point of giving. But this passage would challenge that. It's amazing to see how under the worst of circumstances, these churches and the church of Philippi stepped to the plate and they had this incredible record example of giving. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just the first five verses. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, referring to their persecution, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us, with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now notice three truths that we can extract 
from these verses related uh, to an example of giving, uh, even when you're in a time of dire straits, when you personally are suffering need. Number one, give despite your circumstances. That's the example here. And again, I'm not trying to say you're under legalistic obligation to do so. Uh, I trust it to be a matter of delight uh, that you see that your circumstances provide you a unique opportunity to sacrificially give as Jesus sacrificially gave to you. He says, let the wealth of your generosity disguise. That's what, he, that's what happened here. The wealth of their liberality, the wealth of their generosity, it literally disguised the depths of their poverty. Look at the second truth. Give enthusiastically. Uh, the one thing that we see in this passage is Paul apparently did not expect the churches in Macedonia to participate in this offering that he was receiving for the churches in Judea that were suffering famine. That's what was happening here. Churches in Judea were suffering famine. They were in terrible straits. So Paul was going to the Gentile churches. He was receiving an offering that would, that would be utilized to support their brothers and sisters in Judea, in Jerusalem. Well, Paul apparently, understanding what the churches in Macedonia were dealing with, their persecution, their poverty, just living hand in mouth, he apparently had no intent to ask them to participate. But notice it says, the churches came to Paul and they begged him, you can't leave us out. And then Paul says, they not only gave, they gave beyond what they could ever afford. I mean, they gave to the point where it literally jeopardized their lives in many ways. It put their lives at risk. It's just an amazing, amazing testimony here. So let the spontaneity, that next phrase, let the spontaneity of your gift preclude the need to be asked. We shouldn't have to be asked. We should, again, see this as such a wonderful opportunity to express our gratitude for Jesus, that He is the priority, the first love of our lives, and that we're going to trust Him, not put our trust in finances, but in Him. And as we are obedient, as we're responsive to His promptings as He leads us, that He will never let us down. And then look at the third truth. Give knowing you cannot outgive God. That's what we see here. Give knowing you can't outgive out God. Let the sacrifice of your gift be an expression of your love for and trust in God. That's what verse 5 says. He says, what prompted all of this, they first gave themselves to God. They had surrendered their life. They realized all that they were, all they possessed was ultimately God's. And they just laid it on that altar of sacrifice and said, Lord, it's yours. And so we want to follow your leadership, following your promptings, knowing that we can trust you. Knowing that as we follow the example of Jesus Christ, who gave sacrificially, that you will meet our needs and you will not fail us. Now, as we close, principles on giving that apply to all from Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. And let me just uh, point out three principles that we can gain from these verses in the close of the book of Philippians. And here's the first one. And these are precious, precious truths that provide the very foundation to Christian giving and financial stewardship. Number one, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship which reveals the worth I place on my relationship with Christ. That's how we need to view giving. Giving is an act of worship. 
which gives me the opportunity to reveal, to demonstrate the worth I place on my relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul wrote in verse 18. I am amply supplied. Remember, they, they had given him a gift. He's in prison in Rome. They send one of their church leaders, Epaphrodites, with this gift that they had collected. This church that is suffering persecution, struggling in poverty. They raise these funds. They send Epaphrodites to make this long trip to Rome to give this to the Apostle Paul. And so he says, I'm amply supplied. I've received from Epaphrodites what you have sent. And notice how he describes it. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. In other words, what Paul is saying, what excites me, it's not so much that you met a very important need in my life at this time. What, what excites me is that this demonstrates to me how much you love Jesus, how much you value Christ. That's the most significant thing about what you just did, Philippians, is that your giving was an act of worship that showed not only me but everyone else the value you place on Jesus. Look at the second truth. Giving is not only an act of worship, giving is an investment which yields eternal dividends. And notice this next statement, which is to me one of the most precious truths about giving, Christian giving. The amount of my return is not determined by the size of my gift, but by the depth of my sacrifice. I love that. That puts us all on an equal playing field. It doesn't make any difference if you're sitting here this morning and you're a millionaire or you're a senior adult on a fixed income. Before God's eyes, we're on an equal playing field because the issue is not the size of the gift, it's the depth of the sacrifice. And we see that with the widow. You remember that? Remember that story? Jesus is at the temple with his, with his guys. And they're watching all these Pharisees and these rich Jews coming with bucket loads of money and throwing it into the coffers of the temple. And then this little widow comes up and she throws a couple of pennies in. And Jesus goes, guys, did you just see that? See what? He said, that woman, this is what he actually said. He said, that woman, that little widow just gave more than everyone gave put all together. And Disciples couldn't understand that. I mean, again, doesn't a carpenter know math? I mean, you've just seen what's happened. And then he explains himself. He says, because guys, all those others, they just gave out of their surplus. There was no sacrifice. It didn't really cost them anything. And to be honest, it was a show for many of them to get the applause of men. But that little widow, she gave everything she had. She gave sacrificially. She gave recklessly in many ways, putting her own life in jeopardy. So I tell you that she gave more than everyone, and the return will be greater. Look at verses uh, uh, 15 through 17. After I left Macedonia, no church... Shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Isn't that an amazing statement? I mean, there were churches that Paul dealt with, like the church at Corinth, that were wealthy churches that were materially blessed. But he says, 
There's no church that shared with me in the matter of giving or receiving, but you alone, this persecuted church, this church that's struggling in poverty. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Then he says, not that, notice, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Will you please circle the word profit? In the Greek text, that word literally, literally was used in the money markets of that day. And that word is referring to the interest that would accumulate to a person's investment account. And so you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying giving is an investment. And the size of the investment, the size of the internal reward, the size of the heavenly treasure will be determined not by the size of the gift, but by the depth of the sacrifice. And as you give sacrificially, you are literally building up for yourself. As we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you are storing up, amassing a treasure, a foundation for yourself that you will enjoy throughout all eternity. And and that helps you understand, why in the world would a widow do what she did? Why would these churches in Macedonia being persecuted, struggling in poverty. Why in the world would they give like that? I mean, we look at that and we say, that's irresponsible. I mean, these were moms and dads that had children that are struggling to care for their children. And, and, but, but this is such reckless giving in, in light of their circumstances. Yet they gave, and they gave beyond what they could afford, Paul says. And you say, what explains that? And here it is right here. They understood that their giving was not only an act of worship, but it was an investment. And that their giving would bring to them eternal dividends that would be determined by the depth of the sacrifice. And then look at the third truth, and this is a great one. And this is a truth necessary to understand to be able to freely give, not in duty, but in delight. Giving is a channel. Giving is a channel through which I give to receive and receive to give. Yes, Jesus, the teaching in Scripture, I wish I had more time and I don't right now. But the teaching in Scripture is very, very clear. If you are in need, the, the, the exhortation is give. If you're in need, give. You give to receive, but you receive to give. In other words, God wants to use you as a channel, as a distribution center. And that's why he often tests us in this area. Can I really trust this individual with resources, knowing that they will invest them in the cause of Christ? Matter of fact, Jesus said this. He said, if I can't trust you with how you handle money, material things, how in the world could I ever trust you with true spiritual riches? And then, let me just close. My time's gone, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Well, of course, Philippians 4, 19 emphasizes it. And my God shall what? Supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But don't yank that verse out of its context. In the context that's given to a group of people that were being persecuted, struggling in poverty, that had given sacrificially, and God said, hey, you can count on me. I will supply all your needs. I will not let you down. You have proven I can trust you as a channel. And that as you give, 
that you'll receive more so that you can continue to give. And then 2 Corinthians 9, what a great, great passage. Let me just read verses 6, 7, and 8. It says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also what? Reap sparingly. And it's talking about giving. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one of you do just as he purposed in his heart. You're to give thoughtfully, reflecting on who Jesus is and what he did for you. And notice in the heart, you're to give enthusiastically. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. In other words, you are to give voluntarily. You shouldn't have to be begged. You shouldn't have to be put on a guilt trip. And I never want to put you on a guilt trip. I want you to give as an act of worship, seeing it as an investment, and that you are a channel through which God wants to bless others. And then for God loves what? A cheerful giver. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight, seeing this as an opportunity to worship Jesus. And then he says, look at the promise now. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, he says, as you obey me in this area, I'm able to enrich you so that not only are your needs, basic needs met, but you have a surplus to give, to invest in the lives of others. So again, I trust this truth challenges us. Uh, I, truth, I trust this truth excites us uh, to see that fundamentally giving is an act of worship providing us an opportunity to invest, to receive eternal dividends, and to put ourselves in a position to be a channel, a distribution center for God. And as He sees that He can trust us, He'll continue to give that we might release to others. Father, thank You for this uh, wonderful truth. And thank You for Jesus who lived this truth out. As we saw in the book of Philippians, the very one who did not consider equality with God a thing to selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself. Again, as we noted earlier, he who was rich became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. So thank you uh, that you have lived this out for us, and I thank you as you, we follow you. You want to take us deep into that same lifestyle, seeing giving as an act of worship, as an investment, that we might be a channel for you. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended uh, this morning, I know that this has been a little bit of a unique message uh, dealing with Christian giving, but there possibly may be someone here who uh, has been uh, visiting, would like to unite with our church family, someone who possibly recently came to know Jesus, desires to make a public profession of faith, and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I mean, I hope you've heard that the backdrop of this message is Jesus, who gave everything for you, who left heaven and came to this earth to die on the cross for one reason, to cancel your sin debt, and to be able to then deposit to your account His righteousness to give you a right standing before God. And if you don't know Him, I urge you to put your trust in Him. And what he did for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. And make your heart right now his home as you invite him in to forgive you of your sin and take control of your life. But I trust every believer.
We've all been challenged today. I've been challenged. We've all been challenged. Uh, the Word of God always uh, brings that challenge. So let's respond in this area of giving and ask God to grow us in this area as individuals, as a church family, that we would truly see our opportunity to worship, to make an investment, and be a channel for God. So please stand as the invitation is extended.